Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to episode 64 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. How are you feeling about the cooling heat wave? Is it cooling? Yeah, apparently it's over, it's all over now. God, that's really depressing. I hate it when people kept on saying it was too hot. I, I, I'm glad, it's, I think today is perfect. It's still bright and tanning in. <laughs> Since we last spoke, the Trump baby balloon has taken off, and my favourite picture, and boy the choices were good, was the one of Nelson Mandela catching baby Trump as the orange balloon appeared to float into the giant statue's hands in Parliament Square. Nearly 250,000 people joined the Dump Trump march in central London, protesting against the President's visit. That's a huge turnout, no? Yeah, enormous. Next, there was a press conference at Chequers between Trump and Theresa May, which was described by press there as agonising. Not so much a press conference as a 50-minute couples counselling session, one in which the therapist was regrettably absent, leaving no one to mediate between two rapidly fragmenting psyches, wrote John Crace in The Guardian. Trump later suggested that Theresa May should sue the EU. And of course, the video of Trump barging in front of the Queen, leaving her to totter behind him, went viral. Have you seen that video? No. God, it's really shocking. One of the best tweets on that I read was this from Matthew McGregor, which has had 40,000 retweets. I'm not a monarchist by any stretch of the imagination, but this is such an insult to Britain. Absolutely clueless, thoughtless, lacking in any dignity and without a shred of respect. So it's basically the Queen tottering alone in her lilac number in that baking heat Mm. with Trump like sort of barging past her and walking in front of her without offering her an arm without kind of deferring to her at all and it's had a lot of um it's had a lot of coverage because it just really summed up just that complete lack of respect Mm -hmm. he has for Mm. anyone really Poor old Queenie. In most recent Trump news he has denied that Russia has meddled in the elections going against his own intelligence chiefs. Away from Trump, I was interested this week by some tweets from Susanna Reid. Of course you were. Absolutely obsessed. Have you seen these? No. So she wrote these in response to the increasing pressure she seems to be under to make a stand against her Good Morning Britain co-host, Piers Morgan. Half my critics think I should leave my paid employment because they take issue with the one person sitting next to me. The other half think I should leave because I take issue with the person sitting next to me. I'm staying right where I am, wrote one of them. Getting hit from left and right, criticised for being too opinionated and too quiet, accused of being a snowflake and a, see you next Tuesday, too liberal, too enabling, good looking but my skin just gets thicker by the second, she wrote. What do you make of her facing all the criticism at the moment for co-hosting with Piers Morgan? Well, I think, you know, it's so hard for women to find space in broadcasting. So I understand what she's saying, that this is her job and she's got to show up and she's got to take it seriously and she's got to make a living. Um, But I do understand why people might find it problematic that she shares that space with Piers Morgan, particularly some of the stuff he says on that show. But I do think she's quite good at picking him up on it. I mean, I don't watch um, Sit Up Britain, but you do. But she does, doesn't she? She does hold him to account for some of the more offensive things that he says. She does. I also think she's quite graceful. It's not her place to go on and argue on air with her presenter. And actually, when presenters do do that, and there are other presenters who I find are constantly, like, nitpicking at their co-host, mm. it's quite uncomfortable viewing. Like you and I. He, <laughs> he's there. He is there to represent a voice. Mm. And he actually, a lot of the time, has done some quite thoughtful reading and comes up with some quite interesting points of view a lot of the time he's also very controversial but um 
I don't really think that he should have to stand down any more than she should. I think they're there to represent different viewpoints. And like you say, she picks she picks them up on it when it matters. Away from the trials and tribulations of Piers Morgan and Susanna Reid, what's been in the mailbag this week? We got a bunch of really lovely emails for our listener whose letter we read out um, for Ask the Hilo last week about being a young adult orphan. And I've replied to them, but I also just want to say thank you so much for those and any more that are coming. Pandora and I were very moved by them. And with your permission, I will be sending all of those on to her. And what have you been enjoying this week, Dolly? I read a fabulous piece by Suzanne Moore with my coffee this morning about her upcoming 60th birthday and how we view women and age. Suzanne Moore, I'm sure you all know, is a Guardian journalist and widely thought of as uh, one of the best journalists working today. She's a very brave writer, I think. She's admirably no-nonsense and very clean with her prose. And do check out her writing, particularly her political commentary, if you're not familiar with it. She wrote... I gaze upon our youth, especially in this weather, as they glow with urgency, and I remember all that fondly, but I know that my time is now. The anxiety of menopause has come and gone, and let me know that my energy is now for me, that I am responsible for my own happiness. I have spent my disposable income on getting work done, not on my face, too late, but on my brain. I went back to college. This is the only anti-aging serum I would recommend. We are told that women my age are embarrassing, while men my age are hitting their prime. But surely in this era of self-identification, we all know that inside doesn't match the outside, and I'm actually 14. Hopefully I will get the document soon. The only wisdom I have accrued is that it doesn't help to worry about what others think, as they will think it anyway. Don't act out of obligation. You're allowed to waste your own time. As Nora Ephron said of a friend who had tongue cancer and so couldn't eat a last meal, have your last meal all the time. This is how I intend to live. I'm not fooling myself or anyone else about my age. So 60, bring it on. I want all the cake. (laughs) I loved it so much. And I think our attitude to ageing in this country, particularly ageing women, is something I feel very enraged about. I find it very disrespectful and very patronising the way we speak about and treat older women. And I think this piece is a really important reminder um, that, to quote Hannah Gadsby, these women are in their prime and that they deserve to be heard and they deserve to be taken seriously and they deserve to be seen. So thank you very much, wonderful Suzanne Moore, for writing that and very happy birthday to you. I also listened to Elizabeth Day's new podcast, How to Fail, which is such a good idea for a series, I think. She interviews people about three particular things that they've failed at throughout their lifetime uh, with the ethos of the podcast being that We learn so much more from failure than we do from our success. And yet we live in a culture that only recognises and discusses and uh, is open about achievement. Um, The first episode is with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is the uh, actor and writer and creator of Fleabag, who I just adore. And I think it's probably the most open interview I've heard with her. And uh, she talks about a load of different stuff. She talks about the indignity of auditioning and being being an actor she tells a very funny story of failure about when she auditioned to um have a part quite a big part i think in downtown abbey um she talks about the taboo of female rage and anger and how she harnesses it and uh, the long disaster that is one's 20s it's a really great conversation between two very intelligent and open-minded women and also good friends which i think you can hear with their chemistry and uh, I could have listened to it for hours. Here's a clip I particularly enjoyed when Phoebe is talking about women's fear of ageing. The gloom of self-loathing that we're supposed to grow around us as we get older and start fearing that our value is diminishing has been the opposite experience for me, actually. I feel like there's a message from society and billboards and all that kind of stuff that is teaching us to sort of hate ourselves. And I've always felt like that was a kind of way of controlling us. And the moment I realised that, I was like, oh... You're just trying to control me. And then that flicked my rebellious switch even more. And now I just feel way more fierce than I ever did in my 20s. Disclaimer, Dolly Alderton has also shared her own stories of failure on this podcast. I am. All my epic failures are coming up at some point in this series. And I've also interviewed, I begged Elizabeth if I could interview her for the final episode, which I did yesterday. That's what journalists do when they're drunk. They just sit around interviewing each other. (laughs) Exactly. Speaking of drunk, I'm also slightly bleary-eyed, fresh off the weekend at Latitude, where I was half working, half playing. Um, I saw some really, really brilliant comedians and performers and musicians. But one particular highlight I've discovered through the lineup of Latitude is an Irish musician called David Keenan, who 
I just cannot stop listening to his music. He has the most beautiful voice and he sings in his um, his Irish accent as well, which I love. And his songs are deeply soulful and so poetic. And he's just such an Irish musician in his lyricism. It's like proper old storytelling and I went to look for interviews with him afterwards and there's a great interview with him with Roisin Ingle who's an Irish columnist who I absolutely adore she does a podcast series called Roisin Meets with some really interesting people the Catelyn Moran interview is also very good and she has this long conversation with David Keenan about how he came to write music and I don't know maybe I fell for it hook line and sinker but as a as a folk fan I feel like he's a proper Troubadour, and I feel like he's the real thing. And if I lean towards the trigger, you say you can't get a killer, no. No, you can't get a killer, no. What have you been up to this week? I've been reading The Discomfort Zone by Farrah Store. Farrah is the editor of Cosmo in the UK and this is a, I'd call it a work help book as opposed to a self-help book and there are quite a few of these around at the moment. There's the Toolkit for Working Women by Otega Wagba. there's the Multi-Hyphen Method by Emma Gannon. The Discomfort Zone has a really interesting premise and it's not something I've really seen explored elsewhere although it really ties in with Elizabeth's podcast about you know, failure being a really positive and like galvanising thing. So yeah, it centres around the idea that a brief moment of discomfort is necessary and vital to success. And she talks about the danger of avoiding discomfort, the obstacle shirker, and champions the micro diversion as a way to overcome obstacles. She uses stories of successful people at every turn, which I loved as they really help illustrate her point. For example, with the power of the micro diversion, where you sort of, yeah, you take a kind of tiny pivot to still, to overcome that seemingly looming obstacle. She uses the story of the Royal Ballet soloist, Eric Underwood. When Eric was 13 or 14 years old, um, growing up in America, um, he was from a poor household and his mother really wanted him to get into the performing arts school because she thought it would lead to a better life. And so Eric went to try out in the you know, on the stage for to get in through his acting and he froze, he completely froze, he forgot all of his lines and, you know, they said, this isn't for you. But instead of completely losing out at the chance of a better education, Eric merely did a micro-diversion and he went into the ballet class for a ballet audition and he said, I haven't studied, but I'm really great at street dancing mm-hmm. and I can learn and I can move. And he got into the school and now he's the royal ballet soloist. Mm-hmm. So there's these really... I'm, I'm not, I don't really read like work help or self-help books yeah. but um, it's just such an interesting idea and I love how she kind of packages it up with you know the idea of the you know don't be an obstacle shirker and take your micro diversion and it's um, it's just like a really fun way to learn and, mm. and to take those tools into the workplace and I think it's something I'll come back to actually at points throughout my career. I've also been engrossed in The Caliphate, a podcast which is hosted by Rukmini Kalamachi, the foreign correspondent for The New York Times, who has been nominated for three Pulitzer Prizes over her career. So she's like a really kind of uh, well-known, you know, brilliant journalist. In the podcast, Rukmini covers everything from the daily fear you live with as a foreign correspondent to what ISIS is and why and how it gained its following. A couple of riveting episodes of the podcast see her interview a Canadian ISIS fighter who has carried out two executions. And I was listening to a podcast last week, I can't remember if it was The Economist or The Week Unwrapped, where someone said, look, this isn't a popular opinion, in fact, it's a downright controversial one, but for many people, ISIS stabilised their lives in a day-to-day fashion in a way that foreign forces in Syria could not and did not. And I think just in light of that comment, it's important to see terrorism from all of its sides and how these people got there, not just to see them as evil executors, but also through the eyes of the people who actually, if not permanently, found solace and found like a new career in it. And this and these interviews with this ISIS fighter are really fascinating. On a lighter note, thank you to the Hilo listener who introduced me to 
Undercover Lover, the unofficial Love Island podcast from the journalist Harriet Minter. It's a weekly deep dive covering all things Love Island and it's absolutely brilliant if you're really into Love Island. Um, She's had lots of journalists on it like Elizabeth Day again, um, Laura Jane Williams, um, Hattie Crystal. It's it's just really fun and thoughtful. And according to some tweets I got this morning, much better than the official Love Island oh, podcast, really? which I, I love that from Dolly. Oh, really? Oh, great. I will not be listening to either because <laughs> she doesn't watch Love Island. In the papers this week, I loved Janice Turner's piece on humble heroes like the Thai rescue divers, the England football team and Bill and Melinda Gates. We are not heroes, said John Valanthin, a rescue diver, when he arrived at Heathrow. What we do is very calculating, very calm. It's quite the opposite. And she basically compared these kind of, these men who act with such kind of fortitude, but also such humility. And she compared that to the billionaire Elon Musk, who got in a huff when he was told that his mini submarine was not right to use for the Thai cave excavation. I'm just going to read out an excerpt here. A theme of this unforgettable summer has been modesty over grandstanding, team effort over ego. I was struck this week how every England player thanked not just his fellow players, but the staff, the people who wash their kit and massage their aches. Nor did their manager consider for a moment milking national goodwill with a homecoming parade. True heroes don't showboat, embellish their reputation with flashy good deeds. They send secret checks instead of boasting about their charity work. They fly across the world for no reward. Unlike our visiting very stable genius, they don't boast about how they're doing a fantastic job. Quietly, they hold the world together. So strike a medal for the quiet people, except they'd never wear it, they'd keep it in a drawer. Support for the Hilo comes from Moet and Chamden. When you make wine, it's so much more than pressing grapes and letting them age. Everyone's favourite bottle of bubbles, Moet Brut Imperial, is actually made of over a hundred different wines made from the three Champagne grape varieties, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier and Chardonnay, that have been blended. These wines have come from a number of different harvests. The challenge for the cellar master is making sure that no matter what, the Moet Imperial tastes the same year on year and bottle after bottle. It's like an artist who is asked to paint the exact same picture with identical colours, but who is given a different palette. No pressure at all then. When Benoit Guez, the cellar master, feels the harvest is exceptional, it is his time to have some fun and make a vintage champagne. A vintage champagne means that only the grapes from that harvest will be blended. This means that each one vintage is totally unique and exclusive, just when you thought champagne couldn't get any better. Apparently 2009 was the best year for champagne in a long time. So if you've got your hands on a bottle of Moet Grand Vintage 2009, then you are set. Thanks very much to Moet and Shandon. It's now time for The Top Line, read by Dolly Alderton. Search high and low, so close, yet so far to go, I just know. Hollywood producers are already fighting over film rights for the Thai cave rescue story. Hollywood producer Michael Scott was seen down at the scene interviewing divers, whilst Ivanhoe Pictures has announced that it is in talks with the Thai government and Navy about a film. John Chu, the director attached to Ivanhoe Pictures, tweeted, I refuse to let Hollywood whitewash out the Thai cave rescue story. No way, not on our watch. A plastic surgery clinic has been condemned for encouraging people with poor credit ratings to take out loans to pay for surgery. Maya, whose adverts run during the Love Island break, has been in trouble previously for an ad last year which depicted boob jobs as a confidence booster for new mums. Twitter has done a purge of its fake followers and bots, leaving Obama down by 2.35 million followers, Justin Bieber down by 2.7 million, Dolly Alderton down by a thousand, and Twitter itself shedding 7.7 million followers. Jack Dorsey has been praised for this attempt to clean up Twitter and minimise the abuse which has become rife across the platform. The United Nations has called for their unimpeded access to almost 250,000 Syrians stranded in the desert near Jordan and Israel, who fled as al-Assad's forces entered rebel-controlled parts of Daraa. The UN has called the situation dire. There is no shelter or protection from desert heat and winds and food supplies have dwindled. 
It called on all warring sides to allow the passage of aid deliveries to civilians. Four members of Pussy Riot have been jailed for 15 days after running onto the pitch during the World Cup final on Sunday. The Russian activist group said it was a protest against human rights abuses in Russia. Scientists have said that warming seas are likely to bring 10 species of sharks to British waters within the next 30 years. There are already around 40 species of sharks living off the UK coast, but climate change is likely to bring new kinds from areas like the Mediterranean and African coast. A watchdog has found the Metropolitan Police is failing to record more than 94,500 crimes every year, amounting to about 10.5% of the total reported to the force by the public. The watchdog highlighted domestic abuse as among the areas that were not being adequately registered. A model has walked down the catwalk while breastfeeding her baby. At the Sports Illustrated show during Miami Swim Week, Mara Martin strutted down the catwalk in a metallic gold, one-shouldered bikini while carrying her five-month-old baby who was wearing noise-cancelling headphones and a nappy. A mini tsunami has hit tourist beaches in parts of Majorca and Menorca. A wave measuring nearly five feet hit the west coast of Menorca on Monday morning. There were no reports of any injuries and the tsunami occurred when the beaches were largely empty before holidaymakers started to arrive for their daily dose of sun. More than 60 British rabbis have written a joint letter saying Labour has chosen to ignore the Jewish community as the party's ruling body prepares for a meeting on its anti-Semitism code of conduct. Some of the UK's most senior rabbis in a letter to The Guardian said Labour was acting in an insulting and arrogant way by choosing in its new code to amend an international definition of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism within sections of the Labour Party have become so severe and widespread that we must speak out with one Jewish voice, the letter said. And that was the top line. It is now time for our author special. Yomi Adagoke and Elizabeth Uvabenene are the authors of Slay in Your Lane, The Black Girl Bible, which was published earlier this month by Fourth Estate after a bidding war between nine different publishers. Stuffed full of interviews with successful black British women, such as Olympic athlete Denise Lewis, politician Dawn Butler, barrister and journalist Ephra Hirsch, comedian Susan Wacoma and publisher Charmaine Lovegrove, it covers what it is to be a young black woman through education, dating, the workplace and mental health. We are writing this as much for ourselves as we are for other black women, wrote Yomi in the foreword. But as Janice Turner wrote in an interview with you both for The Times, Slay in Your Lane should be mandatory reading for everyone. We rarely hear about black women, you write. This book, brilliantly and thoughtfully researched, stuffed full of information and anecdotes, is destined to change that. Welcome to the studio, Yomi and Elizabeth. Hi. Hi. First off, can you tell us a bit about how the idea for the book came about, the process of bringing it together, um, and what that process was like as two very close friends? So we came up with the idea in March 2015. Um, I was in my corporate job, it was like my first kind of like major graduate job after university. And as you do, you kind of work out like what you want to do with your career. So I kind of like looked at my boss, my boss's boss, his boss, and they were all essentially like white men. And I guess I felt a bit like, oh, okay, can I thrive in this environment? So I read like loads of um, personal development books such as Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg um, and Though those books were great, there was a particular chapter in one of the follow-up books that she wrote that really kind of like spoke to me. It was a chapter talking about a black women's place in just corporate America. And I think it was that kind of chapter in that follow-up edition in Cheryl Sandler's book that kind of made me realise that, oh wow, there should be more than just Mm. like one chapter in this book in a follow-up edition. There should be like a whole kind of um, a book essentially. And I think at that time I was kind of like in my own kind of like challenges at work. I was just trying to work out exactly what I wanted. So um, I essentially called Yomi on my kind of frustrated week. And as you do, your best friend. And um, obviously her being a journalist and writer, I was like, I think you should write a book for me essentially. Um, And we had a conversation. And by the end of that conversation, um, we decided to like to work together on, on, on the book. Yeah, and then there was a lot of sort of, because initially when Elizabeth called me, it was like, okay, we want to talk a lot about the workplace and how you sort of navigate the workplace as a black woman. And then once we started doing research, it became clear there was just nothing about being a black British woman in any context. So whether it was like dating or health or um, education or within the media sort of thing. So then we were like, what's the point of like 
slaying in your work lane if like your love life's just mm. a total mess and like if your health's a total mess so then it just kind of expanded and I think um that's where the whole kind of like collaborative and like best friend element came in really handy because it's like we're so different and also so similar that we had like such a clear vision but then it's like we could always kind of see what was missing because mm. if one of us didn't spot it the other one would so it just kind of like built like honestly so quickly because it was just like we just kind of been like what about this what about that like yeah slay in your lane is at its best when discussing the myriad nuances of racism with multiple illustrations of each you cover microaggressions micro assaults micro invalidation the white cosine and the idea of covering where a black woman adopts a white face to be more racially palatable can you talk a little bit about these kind of numerous things that you identify in the everyday struggles that a black woman might face in the workplace or in dating or in health as you say or in school and um, so i'll talk a little bit about covering which is what um funke abimbola one of our um, interviewees a lawyer spoke about which i never sort of actually thought of like I'd been sort of vaguely aware that it was something I was probably doing but there was no kind of language for it and I think that's one of the things that we really try to do in this book with Funke she was talking about covering and essentially um not feeling that you can protect I mean I guess no one really brings their whole self to work because then we just be mm -hmm. like mad <laughs> but um she was like talking about sort of yeah essentially covering by kind of putting on a face that isn't one that you it's not a natural one if that makes sense it's kind of like ensuring that you are as you said racially palatable um by sort of chipping off little bits of yourself that i suppose are too black if that makes sense so that's kind of like um ensuring that you have the right hair in certain um, work environments you speak a particular way we speak a lot about code switching um nobody's saying that you should bring your entire self to work but you shouldn't feel like you have to sort of put away big bits of what makes you yourself in a drawer essentially and feel like things that are sort of core to your like black identity um you shouldn't feel that you know you're gonna sort of be um held back in the workplace mm -hmm. by sort of embracing them the thing about microaggressions they're not always intentional and i think it was important for us to kind of not see it as like oh my god everybody's racist because they they've said oh like they're touching your hair in that chapter what we try to do our best is to kind of not say you have to then deal with it in terms of anger or there are different ways to kind of you know navigate those spaces working in like you know Quinera Wolf and, and a big corporate firm I've definitely had so many kind of like little things that you end up spending your day just brushing them off and by the end of it you are meant to kind of do your job and I think that was something that we went to an event and I said that and they were like, oh my God, because you don't go to work to kind of brush off other people's little microaggressions and things like that, because they do build up and you want to progress in work and these things um, don't, you know, form in a vacuum. And by the point you're, you know, you're trying to kind of, like you and me spoke about, bring your most authentic and your best professional self to work. You're battling kind of like things that kind of mm. invalidate you being there in the first place. I think that the way you name stuff is really powerful. Like the idea of the white cosine that you know a young black woman at work may suggest an idea but no one takes it seriously until like yeah. her white senior is like oh that's a really good idea yeah. I thought that was a really interesting way of of putting it that's happened to me like I've been in I've been in like meetings and where I'm obviously the marketing manager I'm leading a project and I would say well this is how I feel and, and this is what we should be doing and give really structured feedback and my kind of superior he would um, who's a white male he, he would say well I agree with Elizabeth and all of a sudden everyone's a bit more energetic about that particular mm -hmm. idea or that particular piece of feedback um, but what I've found is it can prove useful in inverted commas, but it's not something that I like to rely on. Yeah. And I, I you should and, have to yeah, rely exactly. on it. And also, as you as you said earlier, is that that grinds down on you. If that's mm. if that's a kind of low level constant thing, then it will really have an effect on like your sense of agency and your sense of worth and your confidence and your work. Absolutely. Mm. The book describes what it is to be a black woman right from the very beginning. For example, in the classroom, the main focus is on white working class boys, then a smaller focus on black boys, leaving little to no attention paid to black girls. As a result, black girls are largely rendered invisible within the education conversation, you write Elizabeth. You write about the unconscious bias of the classroom and cite the absence of role models for black and minority ethnic children. And you endorse this with a ton of really, really meaningful statistics. One that I found particularly interesting is an American study that showed that you're more likely to succeed as a student if you look like your teacher. And it was more profound in black girls. I think that was what that was a bit that really like took me back. More it, across all different pupils, it 
proved to be true but when it came to black girls it was even more apparent out of all the other groups and i think that says a lot it says a lot about the importance of representation yeah. essentially mm, it comes back to the you cannot be what you cannot exactly see. doesn't it and time Absolutely. and time again yeah i mean you guys did so much research for this book it was unbelievably impressive but also it just was so galvanizing to your arguments there was no like oh you could read that data one way or the other this was like overwhelming data and i, I don't think i've ever read a book with so much fortifying data um, for example, in 2013 to 14, only 12% of trainee teachers were not white, whilst only 8% of university professors are not white. Mm. And of that 8%, only 0.49% mm. are black women. Were you shocked when you were doing this research? Or did it just, you know, endorse your feelings that like, my God, we need this book and my God, we need change? I think it was like a combination of the two. Um, the research is very intentional because so much of our sort of as black women our fears and our kind of like you know we have these kind of suspicions that you know maybe this is because i'm black and but then it's been caricatured over the years because you know, there was the whole ali g is it because i's black like that's yeah. literally how our yeah. sort of um, worries about things and whether things are racist that's what they've been called kind of rendered to so for us it was so key and so important that whatever we were saying was backed up with as much statistical data as we could it's so important to try and get as specific as possible because we wanted people to read it and sort of be like look, this isn't about a chip on... Exactly, this isn't a chip on the shoulder. This isn't, you know, this made-up imagined thing. Elizabeth talks a lot about sanity checks and just being able to see that these things aren't imagined. But then also for people that don't live within this demographic to understand that it's not made up. Mm. Um, But I guess for us, when we're reading it, it's like a lot of it was shocking. A lot of the things around health, for instance, and like black women being three times more likely to die from breast cancer. Some of the stats around education, again really shocking to actually sort of see black and white but then at the same time it's like you kind of have this weird inkling because you've been there we're very like fortunate we went to great universities and stuff but there have been there have been instances and sort of anecdotes that kind of i think we've both kind of been underestimated when it came to grades we've both had kind of like conversations about you know teachers sort of predicting grades wrong so we've actually been there yeah so oh, one of your contributors um tells a story about how she did very similar work to dawn butler, dawn butler yeah. yeah to a blonde classmate and consistently teachers, it was just yeah. a given that the classmate would get an a and she would get a d yeah. no matter how much she did yeah and at one point she said she talks about how they should swap their work yeah. and i was thinking i wish you swapped your work because i bet the answer yeah. would have been what absolutely you thought it would be. exactly and i think exactly that's exactly why some of the stats are massively shocking and black and white but then others aren't because when you when you are literally sort of age seven or eight thinking maybe we should swap our work because maybe then we'd you know get the, the right grades that you know that's not that's something that i suppose you kind of know from such an early age because you can see it yourself. We, we learn to pick up on these things very quickly. Mm. Um, for instance, I'm always talking about the dating chapter and how the stats of like, you know, black women are more likely to be um, swiped left than any other group. And then that goes for within our own community. So black men as well. Like, to again, seeing it on paper is like, whoa, that's shocking. But being a black woman and sort of like ha- anecdotes from friends and just hearing, like, it's not as surprising as it should be. And I think... A lot of the sort of reactions we get from like when we, when we do panels and we speak to people and they're like, oh my gosh, this really spoke to me and this really shocked me. A lot of the things we weren't necessarily as surprised about because yeah. we kind of, that's why we were able to get so much research because we knew exactly what we were trying to prove and we knew a, exactly what we were looking for. There's a bit where I keep thinking of time and time again, every time I was reading the book and being shocked, where you say that in 2015, David Cameron was, you know, just gave a sort of address yeah. where he said, I'm really shocked that some people have to change yeah. their names to a more English-sounding name when they do a job applications. So every time I was reading this book and I was shocked, I was yeah. like, I'm being David Cameron again. You know, yeah. it's a really, it's a, but it's a really good reminder that, like, Dolly and I can be shocked, yeah. but, you know, it's not shocking to the people who have been living through it. Yeah. You know, yeah. As you guys say, you're not nearly as shocked as... That's absolutely. So I was just going to say exactly with the David Cameron thing. The reason that's... Really be less so David Cameron yeah. is now my mantra. <laughs> it's so funny because it's like... Like my name's Yomi Adegoke. It's like there's no kind of like bones about where I'm from. Like it's very clear. I mean, some people assume, oh, okay, like when they see Yomi, that I might be like Japanese or something because the, the, the name's there as well. But either way, everyone knows I'm not white. And I've considered so many times. I think even my dad had once suggested, like, oh, maybe you could try and anglicize your name when you're doing job applications. I think I had a conversation with one of my parents about it. And again, like, I remember being like, okay, w- when we're doing this sort of, um, when reading about like, when researching like lame blind applications for university and all that kind of stuff it's like i knew exactly what to look for because i was like this is something that we know happens and yes. when the- ucas won't do it will they 
Or some universities yeah, have agreed, some, yeah. but some, some haven't. Have, some haven't, and even then, some companies have. So some like um, some big firms, yeah, yeah, definitely have. But the issue is, even if they do do it, when you get to the interview, you're still black, and that's that's what the point that loads mm. of people have made, which is just that you're. It, it literally helps with like it's a it is an idea that's like I think its heart's definitely in the right place, but the bottom line is institutional racism is what needs to go because you get to the it's like okay, I'm going to change your name to like jennifer peters and then you get there and you're still black whatever sensation whatever like prejudice that was going to make them bin the application in the first place is still there when they see that you know jennifer peters is black like it's still there and that's why another reason why i think that the research and the statistics are so important in the book because i remember in one of your interviews with your experts she talks about performativity the problem with performativity which is when someone says normally who is involved in systemic racism where all they have to say is well i'm not racist yeah yeah and that's that that's the conversation ended (laughs) i'm not racist and therefore that's not examined for any longer yeah that's why all your stories though of the micro invalidation the micro assault the microaggression you know all these like very clear labels of the nuances are so important because you are literally show you know you can say you're not racist but like if you suggest that someone can't be at this university or in the in the case of Effia, if you say, um, if you assume that her black male friend is a drug dealer exactly. rather than a fellow student, how that's that's where the book is so is so powerful because you are showing you are showing it with these numerous contributors and numerous stories from so so many different women. Yeah. And there's a lot of unlearning to do with those kind of like assumptions as well it isn't it these things are shocking um but it's not necessarily to say that you can unlearn them because they do they don't form in a vacuum they, they, it, it's kind of like fed to us in various things and reinforced so it isn't if you're not in our community and you read this book it isn't a oh yeah you're racist full stop like because the stats say though it's kind of understanding how kind of you got to that point where yes. you are mm-hmm associating drug dealing with you know a black man and as you said it's about recognizing it and going okay so now i have to unpick this and yeah. change it about myself it's prompting you yeah and exactly this book is not going to make you unlearn all of those things overnight by the time you finish you know yeah. 120,000 words but it's a kind of prompt you to kind of have those discussions mm. and to kind of make you think about things a little bit differently mm-hmm. if you're not part of the community mm. that is speaking to directly Something that you mentioned earlier was sponsorship and you write very compellingly in the book about the importance of mentors and sponsorship for women of colour, particularly in the workplace. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sponsorship is is so interesting because before we did the research around this book, um, I didn't know the difference between mentoring or sponsorship at all because I just thought they were all around the same thing. Um, I think we speak a lot about mentoring um, I guess in the early years of your career because that makes sense like your mentor kind of tells you oh you've got to do this got to stand there got to you know appear this way so they're very much directing you to kind of get to the point where you can break into these firms ultimately or or get your first foot in a career ladder. The thing about sponsorship and I think we talk a, a lot around diversity and um, trying to get uh, women and BAME people into like really kind of more senior roles because they kind of like stuck after you kind of you spend a couple of years in work, a lot of them just st- are just stuck in, in that in that middle management or, or below middle management. Mm. And, and a lot of them in our book, um, we speak about entrepreneurship. They go and start their own kind of things or they, they leave the kind of corporate space. The thing about sponsorship, it was really good to highlight and it opened my eyes was you need allies within these 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 firms to help you and pull black women pull women through it's important and it's so weird but when i was redoing that chapter and i was thinking about it i didn't realize that i had a sponsor all this time when i first got my kind of first big job um it wasn't an intentional thing it was someone who was mentoring but then it turned into a sponsorship where they would be like i want you to work on this campaign Mm. and if i didn't have that i wouldn't necessarily be where I am in my career at all because they were able to really kind of like showcase me to people and I think the beauty about sponsorship when it comes to like black women and and women is you need the people who are sponsoring and who are in higher positions to have those conversations when you're not there so it's not necessarily we're all here and they're like oh here's Elizabeth and she's great that's 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 not enough they need to be able to help you away from detractors or people are not really sure about her her personality in order to kind of get to a point where someone wants to sponsor you and bat for you and and really like um, elevate you in your career they have to know your personal brand and what you stand for and what you're good at inside out 
You unpick the angry black woman stereotype really thoughtfully and with a really interesting mix of voices. You speak to Keisha Buchanan from The Sugar Babes about how her experiences on how she was written about and seen in the public eye um, compared to her white bandmate Heidi Range. Was this a recurring experience when you spoke to all these different women of colour? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, I think Keisha's story was particularly sort of, I mean, yeah, harrowing because I'd when growing up I'd always kind of sort of been aware of the fact that she was always considered the one that was bullying Heidi she was considered I yeah yeah, yeah, yeah so she I was the reason that the yeah. band looked nothing when you were like writing about it I was initially. like that's so true yeah. and Mucha was always the moody one yeah and Heidi oh was like the baby angel I remember like this is what's you know I remember swallowing that like yeah. I remember oh so why as a black woman as, I said yeah. why she was my favorite because I was like oh my god she looks like me and like yeah I absolutely loved Keisha but I definitely I wasn't arguing that she wasn't a bully because yeah. I, that's all I'd heard and essentially um the fact that she she'd kind of been credited for like the continued dismantling of the band because it was like okay a new person's coming and she bullied them and then she bullied this new person so honestly when it came to interviewing her like I genuinely was quite nervous like oh god what's she gonna be like (laughs) and like she really was just like the most softly spoken like nicest like most lovely woman ever and what really kind of almost like yeah I would say embarrassed me was that when I was interviewing her about it and sort of asking her you know like so where did these like rumours sort of come from it was embarrassing because neither of us could really pinpoint any kind of incident that would have led to these kind of accusations. She was talking about how Megan and McKenna from um, Tawi and X on the Beach, how she has like literally been celebrated essentially for being like, she goes off all the time. She's got a really bad sort of temper. All of yeah. Gemma Collins. Exactly, yeah. diva yeah. ship. Love Gemma though. But I absolutely <laughs> love her. Jolly loves the GC. She's, she doesn't she's even watch Towie. I, I do. She doesn't even watch Towie, but she's obsessed with like, she's obsessed with like the meme of Gemma, aren't she? Yeah, totally. But it's so, it's interesting when you say that, when you think of the double standard, I wonder if people would love and celebrate that divaness and that anger in her if she were a Absolutely. woman of colour. Yeah, I mean, it hits the roof you're Absolutely. right and I'm thinking about it yeah. yeah she's just a bit like spicy yeah exactly that's what people we would like say it. we see her as being like a strong woman and we see it, we see it as part of her I suppose having character and being like interesting to be honest because so many of her Towie um, cast about to call them bandmates her castmates <laughs> are so kind of like you know um, just the opposite of that and I think people quite like her and take to her because she's quite like forthright and confident and I, I personally really liked Megan because I thought oh she's interesting but I also liked Keisha right and I've also liked black women that are more complex and more multifaceted and you know not necessarily so sort of like palatable and nice in red commas but the, the interesting thing about Keisha she really is like she's just yeah. so lovely and she was just like I don't even know what the story was that inverted commas broke that has said that I have done any of these things and neither of us could trace it back and she was like it's just so interesting that Megan who we've continually seen like you know she's been in physical altercations she's been on physical fights in, in on television and like you know it's it's helped her launch like a restaurant and a beauty range and a music career and Keisha it's like no one has ever like physically like in the media anyway ever seen her sort of um, have a temper tantrum or sort of lash so out even that her anger was invalidated by the media it's that it was never actually it was created there. exactly yeah. and that's the thing and she was like it's fascinating to her that like despite such like not even little evidence no evidence it was just so easy for everyone to go with and she was talking about Mitya as well and the fact that Mitya sort of being like ethnic and sort of being you know piercings um tattoos um soulful voice so people kind of categorize her often as black as well she was like she it was very much those two were like the angry you know women essentially you say in the book like, there's someone is it a friend of yours that's showing a potential intern around work yeah and you already knew that she wasn't going to get the job because she was too loud mm-hmm. she was too um she had a big personality so she had life in her and i said to my friend well I know you as someone who also has life in you. Mm. Like, what personality are you showing me that you're not showing them? And she was like, because I had the most dulled down personality when I go into work. And what we spoke about covering, she's like the most dulled down version of herself when she's in that environment. Um, that so if she was white with the loud personality, yeah. she would be like kooky. Yeah, exactly. But a girl with a similarly loud personality who was bad, it would be too much. Yeah, Absolutely. too full on. It becomes, not it becomes intimidating. Exactly. And. Um, and this is where we speak about the unwritten rules about getting ahead. So no matter how smart that girl is, that, that intern and how great she is, the unwritten rule as a black woman in that environment is so really- Assimilate. You, exactly. And shimmer down and just be a bit more cautious with how you say things and what you say, because read your emails like 10 times. So if, if you disagree, 
it can so it doesn't come across you know you're being rude like put loads of kisses which is completely exhausting having to check yourself every day the chapter on dating I really enjoyed and you mentioned it earlier well I really enjoyed it in the context of this year's Love Island yeah because I've been watching that you obviously didn't write it about this year but there's been a lot of discussion around Samira and being the only I kind of wish I'd written it a year later (laughs) (laughs) definitely write a piece about it write a piece about it now have you okay I will um, go and do my research and read that piece but yeah the idea that black women are considered sometimes the lowest common denominator in the dating pool and I and I read a really interesting piece on Samira saying it's Mm. it's not just putting a black woman into Love Island there was only one as well it was having men there that find black women attractive and I thought that was a really interesting way of of, of putting it is diversity is mm. not just about yeah, having the person there yeah. it's about having the people who are open Absolutely. to those to yeah. those people are you watching Love Island and what do you make of Samira oh my god of course we're watching Love Island <laughs> and we're one of these like originals that have been watching it since like you know 2014-15 we're oh, an original like, I didn't watch it. the first series oh, oh my did. god this, this yeah. first was a really good one this, this season has been great yeah, this has been the worst of, of, I think the Samira stuff is really yeah it's taken interesting to, yeah to be honest I think it's made it more difficult to watch in some ways because it's kind of like politicized it in a way that like we used to just watch it like completely devoid of any sort of commentary (laughs) or just like oh bants whereas now it's like oh gosh this is actually like gone quite serious and I think with the Samira stuff like that point you just made about like you know people have been saying a lot about it's not just about diversity it's about about inclusion And and I definitely agree with that I just think the issue with around it is that it means uncomfortable conversations surrounding preference have to be had and I don't know if we're necessarily ready for it and I've said this a lot of times that like when we say that black women are swiped left more than any other ethnic group that's within our own community as well and that's amongst black men that's amongst asian men that's amongst white men and um i was saying this literally yesterday on a panel that nobody's trying to say that like off the back of like reading stay in your lane you have to literally find the darkest black woman you can find and be like oh i'm gonna declare your love to her and propose but i feel like preferences are something that like they are yours and they're not for anybody to necessarily like interrogate but I do think that it's very much about acknowledging where they come from and why exactly they do not form in a vacuum and I think one of the weird things around preference is it very much is considered something that you are just born with in terms of like attract who you find attractive physically so not in terms of sexuality but in terms of who what your type is and we really have this weird ingrained idea that it's like we are born and you know you just happen to love like blonde hair and blue eyes and that's it no, and everything cons- else it has it's to be part constructed if you look Absolutely. at porn culture and the damage that that has had exactly and i think especially when you look around like one of the reasons it's so obviously a um constructed thing is that we looked at this documentary called um is love racist um with, with emma debiri and it was saying that the that every single other ethnic group um veered towards whiteness so that's asian people that's mixed race people that's black people every single group that was what was so interesting is that you were saying you know that when someone came up to you in the club you and said you're the prettiest black girl yeah. in this club and, and then you say and he was black yeah. and i think that's and i and i think that's what made this chapter so much more interesting because it wasn't just like oh white men need to find black women yeah, attractive no it was like hold on there is a whole, a whole and it, it's uncomfortable because I think yeah. nobody likes to and I think the thing that's really interesting about it because it, it goes so deep into how we view attractiveness and femininity because I mean I think a lot of people sort of used Samira as because Samira's preference was white men and she quite was quite vocal about liking blondes and men with green eyes and stuff but statistically speaking she's an anomaly most black women are quite happy to date black men it's something that is the other way around where the issue lies so black people date interracially more than any other ethnic group but it's specifically black men and i think it's really important to understand why that is it's because of what we see as feminine and what we see as masculine so black men being sort of like um dark skinned and like um having broader noses and curlier hair and like you know having more um phenotypically african features in bird commas as much as there's all kinds of issues in terms of um how they're perceived hyper masculinity hypersexuality and all that kind of stuff the reason it doesn't black women don't look at black men and find them unattractive is because those are features that they um attribute to masculinity yes. but when you see those features on a black woman so like me and elizabeth with like bigger noses bigger lips darker skin people see that as masculine so so what happens is you get a lot of black women being like well of course i want a dark-skinned man because that means he's more manly and then yeah. when you get a dark-skinned woman it's black men being like oh well then that means she's manly that means, like for instance with serena williams there's a whole now everyone's kind of like oh she's beautiful but there was a whole commentary where before people were like oh serena's a little bit masculine yeah. and it's slightly like, worrying not about masculine. that commentary as well is that i 
feel like people are calling her beautiful now she's married with a child. Yeah, it felt, exactly. it felt like she was legitimized Absolutely. in her beauty by, by a white man. But, yeah. exactly. And by motherhood. Yeah. And by exactly. motherhood. Yeah. Whereas before, the commentary was like, she looks yeah. masculine. And I think that's the issue because we talk a lot about colorism. So preferential treatment based on how your proximity to whiteness, so how light your skin is, how loose your curls are and all that kind of stuff. And I think I'm always trying to drive home the point that this is something that affects black women more keenly because black women with darker skin are seen as more masculine, therefore less attractive. Mm. And also we have to remember that men's worth in this world, not even in this country, in this world, is not as heavily based on attractiveness. So when you're a woman, you have to be beautiful. And when the understanding of what is beautiful is basically whiteness yeah. and then okay so you're not quite blonde hair blue eyes so then you've got women that are kind of light skin with curlier hair they're like sort of slightly higher up and then at the bottom of the rung you've got the like black black girls inverted commas that look like me and elizabeth and and i think yeah it's important to understand that these messages about what is beautiful they don't just live within the white community they seep yeah. into the black community well you write as well that diversity is often seen as a biraceal woman with european features absolutely there's still that like we'll be a bit diverse absolutely. but not like totally but that's just diverse. the palatable it's you know we always say that it's the palatable face of blackness and that's why you know things like black panther should not have been as revolutionary revolutionary sorry as it was to have someone as flipping stunning as Lupita Nyong'o as a love interest but it was we were like whoa look how dark she is and look how short and curly her hair is when in reality she's stunning it shouldn't really make us balk and be celebrate that a black man a black dark-skinned man is with a black dark-skinned woman we wouldn't like throw a big party if like a white man and a white woman are paired up in a film it's just it's just normal Mm. essentially yeah A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You talk about fetishization of black women and the appropriation by white women of black female characteristics. It's something we see reflected in pop culture right now, namely via the Kardashians. Is this appropriation dangerous? Cultural appropriation is such a difficult conversation to have because I always say that in a ideal world, everybody would just be able to do and wear and enjoy everything and borrow off each of other course, but, that's the, how but the you... whole point is we're not in a world where exactly that can happen like in a fair we're and not respectful opera- way yeah. Yeah. absolutely yeah. we're not exactly and it's like you know like we're nigerian and it's like you know lots of the fabrics that we wear dutch wax cloth um it's like really really famous in west africa and for all my life i thought it was nigerian and then i found out obviously the name dutch i was like oh gosh so it's not kind of thing so if it wasn't for cultural not cultural appropriation but if it wasn't for that borrowing and lending and bleeding into of cultures then a big state part of my culture wouldn't exist mm. essentially um so i think in an ideal world that would be great but i think the problem is i've never really had the issue with the borrowing and the bleeding of cultures it's my biggest issue has always been that the value of something changes when a white person has it or wears it that's always been my issue so for instance kids being suspended from school for wearing camos or having braids or hairstyles that are more sort of worn in, within the black community and black girls wear and then you know they're, they're, there's a big issue in terms of the workplace and like um there's loads of examples in the books of um women in professional settings being told that they can't have braids being told that they can't have camos and then a few years pass and then the Kardashians or whoever else decide that they're going to wear cane rows and suddenly... With her Bo Derek quote-unquote exactly. braids. Bo Derek braids. And suddenly the value of cane rows has like skyrocketed and it's something that can be seen as fashionable and desirable and attractive and worn in a professional setting. It, and I think that's the problem is it depends on who wears it. I remember somebody said something that like, you know, what is it that makes um, piercings, nose piercings, um, red hair and um, tattoos on a white girl alternative and then the very same body modifications on a black girl ghetto and I was like that just summarizes it perfectly that like if I was to put right now like a purple streak in my hair and go to work I'd probably be seen as like ratchet or some a ghetto girl from Croydon that's just you know like decided to do this madness with her hair but then if a white girl was to wear it's like oh wow she's manic pixie she's a rock chick yeah yeah, she's a rock chick exactly and I think um yeah I think whilst the borrowing and the whilst the like bleeding into each other is like I honestly think it's great I think the biggest issue is just that a the value changes dependent on who's wearing it the way it's perceived in the world changes dependent on who's wearing it and I think probably the worst thing is that the people that 
essentially popularized it first and never sort of given their due credit, credit. exactly, exactly. Yeah. credit is a big one so like when it comes to things like i think there's a big thing around you know really sort of gaudy like rhinestone nails which obviously anybody that's like lived in croydon or any part of like you know south london for like whatever period of time they've always been really popular to have like these really long kind of like what people would call like yardy nails of like you know massive like neon colors and stuff and then there was a period like over the last few years where that became really fashionable but it became this whole check out these new nails that we've discovered and it's that that's why people used to call before cultural appropriation became the term people used to call it columbizing because of that christopher columbus rocking right. up and discovering yeah. this nation that already existed so it's that thing of camos being invented in this whole 2015 like in 2015 when it became this big like twerking for instance when miley cyrus it was like she's invented twerking and it's like she actually hasn't this is something that if you listen to like songs from the 90s they're singing about all the time so i think that's it's those issues about credit and i don't want to wear something and it's considered tacky on me and then if someone white wears it it's i've always said that like the name shaniqua if like i think the first time i wrote about a cultural appropriation i said something like the name shaniqua if alexa chung had a child because she's like so fashionable and like beloved like if she had a kid and she was like i'm gonna call my child shaniqua all the negative connotations of the name would probably just melt away and it'd be like Shanique was this brand new cool like quirky name yeah so. that's a really interesting example you talk a little bit about slim thick as well about that body type being espoused kind of by lots of white girls in popular culture now and it's it's something you see on instagram as well even yeah. even down to the way a lot of kind of instagram models are like sitting or wearing their clothes or, or even like literally maneuvering parts of their body so it looks like they're really encompassing that body type mm. which obviously is is borrowing from a black body type mm. Mm. but not only instagram models i think even brands i think that's the bit that's starting to really annoy me um so i don't name it I don't name the brands, but um, can just, if you want. Yeah. <laughs> we ain't sponsored by them. <laughs> um, what's this fashion nova? You've got misguided, you've got boohoo. If you go on their pages, they all look like versions of Kim Kardashian's like younger self. You you hardly see any black models and they're but they're meant to look like black women but just not have a darker hue skin. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. I think I think that's the bit that I just find a bit more troubling. And I think as someone who's on their websites, that's a big turn off now that's the thing that really like hurts if anything it's like the the best bits of black girls like it's literally yeah. like you've got a mr potato head and then you're just like plucking like we definitely don't like your noses so like black girls but we'll take your noses. bum exactly yeah. we'll take your bum you can keep the nose you, we can take the lips you can definitely keep the hair but we can take the hairstyles yeah. and then like do you know what i mean it's like just yeah. plucking of certain bits yeah. and yeah and but then keep the skin tone 100 percent. like yeah, yeah. Much has been made of the advances in black beauty recently, and yet a lot of it does seem to be mere lip service. The whitewashing of coloured women, you write, is still rife, and whilst diverse campaigns are being shot, the makeup for those very women is not readily available. For example, Jordan Dunn was the face of Maybelline, but she wouldn't have been able to walk into a store and buy the right colour foundation for her skin because only the six lightest shades were stocked. Why do you think, given that Rihanna's Fenty Beauty Foundation lauded for its 40 shade strong collection and the fact that it's always selling out in the darkest shades, why do you think that the beauty industry is so slow to progress in a kind of wider mainstream sense? Elizabeth actually told me about this because remember that you're quoted in my chapter oh, yeah, about the yeah. distribution thing. Yeah, I think it. I think the thing about Fenty is only stocked in like um, House of Phrase, isn't House of Phrase? Harvey Nichols. Harvey Nichols. So and there's queues around the block. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. you won't necessarily get that in, Harvey Nichols like one in, I used to live in Birmingham, it's like one in Birmingham, I don't think there's, it's not really the most popular store. The average kind of like super drug or boots, they're, they're, they're everywhere essentially, every high street. So in terms of like the distribution, so the marketing campaigns may be kind of like, oh, we have all these, you know, diversity, so L'Oreal, but when you go into like your local super drug, it's just in terms exactly. of space, they're just not going to stock it. They may stock it, but it may be in a drawer. So in terms of that distribution element, the marketing may be great, but if, if they're not getting the distribution into stores where they stock all of the, the, the shades, um, it's never going to be the same. So like, like Bobby Brown, I've gone to like their store and um, they will only, they will have like, let's say five shades and let's say they have 20 shades and um, they will have backups of like the 10 shades. So they have loads of loads of reams of like white <coughs> girls who can necessarily use those shades. But when it came to like the darker shades, they'll probably stock maybe three of each. So once it's out, it's out. And then you've got to wait another like week for them to order it from the actual like warehouse. So it's, it's I think that's more logistical in terms of the actual change. So when you when you watch your ads and stuff like that, that's kind of like diverse and you've got Jordan Dunn fronting it, which is great. But 
the average person when they go into a store it's just not there that's did because your, they can choose not to to stock it mm-hmm. did your research it, suggest that they um claimed that there was not um an audience for it or just that they didn't want to be seen to be stocking it did it point one way or, or, or a bit to both um i think it kind of pointed a bit to both actually i guess in some places they kind of talk about a lack of sort of audience essentially or like a lack of people that would be able to buy it but then one of the reasons i'm like it must at some point the conversation must be like do you just not want to stop this kind of thing because in areas like croydon where we live it's gotten slightly better over the past recent years but the fact that there were issues in terms of being able to just go to our local super drug or go to our local boots and just pick up foundation that matched our skin tone when it's a borough that i've got the most um caribbean people in the country or something like that or it's like basically a 50 percent bane borough so to actually argue that you know oh yeah we're not 100 sure if there'd be an, a market or an audience just literally it's just crap true. Yeah. It, yeah it's just absolutely not true i know there was initially something about um Lux brands feeling like perhaps what is it maybe black women can't necessarily afford to um buy things that are sort of more high-end in terms of makeup and stuff like that and one of the reasons that when christian um Bouton released the, the this is makeup but obviously just about like skin tone and stuff mm. when he released those that those um shoes that were all like different sort of skin tones um people were so sort of excited about it because obviously lubes aren't cheap but it was sort of preempting that black women did have the money and did have the spend to yes. be able to buy sort of luxe items essentially i would definitely say that it's kind of gone both ways and i think what's really interesting is like i wrote that chapter like 2015 2016 it was like the first chapter we ever did and um so much has changed since then i would genuinely say for the better and i genuinely say completely down to rihanna because fenty beauty it's like i'd already written it and i had to literally go back and just right that Fenty Beauty had happened because obviously off the back of that it's like so many brands have, have been like not even just in terms of their marketing but being like the cultural oh, impact of that absolutely makeup brand crazy. just extending that it became that it became the whole new thing to just be like we've extended our um line by like 50 different shades and and blah 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 and yeah as I said even in sort of local like super drugs and boots it's definitely easier but as Elizabeth said they are still more likely to overstock on certain shades and then understock on like the darker shades which is so strange because it's just like that the likelihood of black women buying things in this branch is literally if not if not more the same as if the white women to, mm. in certain boroughs i think it definitely makes sense in certain boroughs where it's like okay it's predominantly white for you to be like oh okay perhaps we don't need quite so many dark foundation shades but the reason i think what really just proves it are the highly densely um ethnic um, areas yeah boroughs and areas that just kind of disprove that theory altogether this book will be an extraordinary help to so many women of color particularly young women of color moving into adulthood who are trying to kind of make sense of the world and understand it but this book wasn't around for you two when you were teenagers and we were wondering if you could go back to your younger selves knowing everything that you know now with all the research that you've done and all the experiences that you've had what would you say to them um gosh to younger me i guess or a younger elizabeth if that's younger elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> i honestly i i guess maybe I guess that there's nothing honestly wrong with thinking that things are racist and thinking that things are sexist because I think when I was really really growing up it's like I almost felt smarter when I was like a teenager for not thinking things were racist or sexist like not putting things that blatantly were down to race but I felt better for not doing that because I felt like as I said that whole Ali G is it because I was black thing I felt like it perhaps made me better or smarter to just be like oh well not everything's about race when a lot of it is sadly in this country and I think it was only when um I went to university and I always say that the book that like literally radicalized me which was called um Patricia Hills Collins's Black Feminist Thought when I read that it was like a um for a module at um uni it was I remember literally leaving like the lecture theatre and being like oh my goodness like so much stuff that I didn't even realize was going on or happening to me like had been and that it was not only not a bad thing but it was important to talk about the fact that these things often happened to me because I was black and because I was female and sometimes because I was both at the same time so yeah I guess honestly if I was going back to like young kind of like 13 year old yummy I'd just be like it matters to be proud to be black because I live in a world which tells me I shouldn't be mm. like being proud to be white isn't something you're, no one's trying to make white people feel bad about being white or feel embarrassed yes. or feel like but being black is something that like yeah it's got like it had and has like loads of stigma around it so that's why black pride was a thing so yeah I think looking back I honestly would just try to tell myself that like 
sometimes things are about race and it doesn't make you any smarter or any kind of like more progressive to pretend it's not because it is sometimes in the same way sometimes things are about sexism and whatever else and whether I ignore it or not it it, it doesn't stop it from being the case. No, I definitely agree with everything Yomi said. Um, I think that this book is in terms of people who are they read it in terms of coming of age and they're younger um i think some of them to understand that there are women who've experienced these things and they are paving the way for you to achieve those things as well as more i think it's for guidance to let them know that they're not alone in this world in terms of they don't have like you know an older sister or younger sister i don't have older sisters so i was always looking for kind of like old women to kind of validate like who I am and stuff so I think it'll just give them a better grounding of like their identity in this world and they're not meant to just be you know in the sidelines or not achieve great things or or just be I guess everybody's kind of like sounding board and they're they they are they are forming identities and they can achieve what they want to achieve essentially. Elizabeth and Yomi thank you so much for coming on the show and congratulations on your totally brilliant book. Slay in Your Lane is published by Fourth Estate and is out now. Thank you very much to everyone who listened to the Hilo. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find us and boosts us in the iTunes charts. You can email us thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.